Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 22 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hi, good. I'm ready to get into things tonight, back in the swing of things. Yes, it feels like we're well and truly back in the swing. We've got Michael alongside us tonight, listening in, making sure that we do everything smoothly with the sound. Yes, audio supervision. Yes, exactly. Uh, like Michael, we have some uh, wonderful new Patreon supporters this week that uh, we want to give a shout out to, Chloe. Yes, we're still getting through the backlog that we have, so hold tight if you haven't heard your name. But thank you and welcome to Sabrina Putman, Tom Linford, Christy Shaw, Mark Chernoff, James Cram, Anna Van Ray, Tracy, Tracy Chesney, Mary Pridemore, Mark Cox, Karina Childs, Lisa Sanders. Jessica, Danny S. King, and Kate Annalise. Thanks very much for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. Before we start this episode, we just wanted to advise that the content within this case today may be particularly stressful for some listeners as it deals with mass murder. In addition to this, two of the victims are very young, one child and one infant. Please exercise self-care when listening to this episode. Today, we're talking about a tragic attack that occurred in Melbourne, Victoria at the beginning of 2017. A more recent one for us, Chloe, we've spent a lot of time in the 1970s recently, it feels, so this is a welcome change of pace in that respect. And this one is a case suggestion from one of our listeners, but it was a devastating attack that shook Melbourne and indeed the country to its core. And there were many theories surrounding this attack, some still being worked through to this day. But one thing we'll see that's not in dispute is the mental instability of the perpetrator and the overwhelming sadness surrounding the senseless loss of life of so many victims.
20th of January 2017, Windsor, Melbourne, Victoria. At around 8am, a Channel 9 news team were covering a story about a man who had been viciously stabbed by his own brother outside their mother's apartment. The victim was fighting for his life in hospital. The Channel 9 reporter discussing the crime was interrupted by a maroon Holden Commodore, which pulled up slowly behind her. The driver leaned out of the window, smiling and looking directly at the camera. That's me they're looking for, he yelled, before driving off in the distinctive vehicle with a missing rear bumper bar. It was a strange sight on a typical Melbourne morning when the city had woken to the humid remnants of an overnight summer's storm. People commuted to workplaces and the Australian Open was in full swing. Fan favourite Roger Federer was set to take on Thomas Burditch centre court at Rod Laver Arena that very evening. This Commodore would be used by its driver as an offensive weapon only around five hours after the captured morning news footage. The driver would go into Melbourne CBD and proceed to drive erratically and viciously, killing six people and wounding around 30 more. CCTV and mobile phone footage of the offender gridlocking CBD traffic and driving indiscriminately through crowds of innocent people has been widely televised. Indeed, there is a lot more footage available from hours, days and even years before this fateful day, which provides some insight into the escalation of his behaviour and his mental instability. To begin this tragic story, we have to go right back in time to the 1990s, to his childhood, and review the events that turned Demetrios James Gargasoulis into the monster he became. Kubipedi is located in the desert of South Australia. It is characterised as being host to some of the hottest climates in Australia. As a result, much of the town is built underground for both residents and commercial enterprises. Kubipedi is known famously as the opal capital of the world. This is where James Gargasoulis grew up with his father, Chris, and his brother, Angelo. They were reportedly of Greek Tongan heritage. The two brothers would not have a happy childhood. Angelo, when interviewed years later, described it as one big massive trauma, and he described suffering serious physical abuse at the hands of their father. A couple of examples were being clobbered with a tree branch and having their two heads smashed together. The boy's mother, Emily, resided in Melbourne and rarely visited the pair, and when she did could only stand to stay for a few days before needing space from their father. It was also reported the boys had a half-brother named George and a half-sister named Sesimani. Alicia Bland, a former girlfriend of George's, had nothing nice to say about the boy's father, Chris. She said he didn't accept her because she wasn't Greek and said to her on the phone on one occasion, you're nothing but an Aussie slut and Aussies are for a good time, not a long time. Her words for their mother Emily were not much better. Angelo described his brother James as having an intellectual disability while growing up, and that his personality was described by many as crazy. 
He was in special education and was always regarded as being a special kid. Court documents would later show that from an early age in his life, Gargasoulis displayed sociopathic tendencies. And he was a big kid who would grow into a big adult. School photos always had him in the middle, in the back row. With the way they arranged those photos, that's a sure sign he was probably the biggest kid there. And he'd grow into a lumbering adult, six foot three, medium build, and it's later commented by a witness that he looked a bit like Nick Kyrgios, which I think is on the money. Gargasoulis, a non-conforming child at school, soon became the subject of relentless bullying. Martin Grava was a former classmate of Gargasoulis. He reflected on his time at school with him and said, Jimmy was just Jimmy. He was an eccentric sort of kid. That's why he was a target, because he was different. Gargasoulis's response to the bullying was to hit back ten times as hard which carried terrifying potential consequences. A school friend described how Gargasoulis said to him that he was going to do something about this bullying. One week later, the entire school was evacuated when Gargasoulis smuggled a series of homemade bombs into the grounds. Gargasoulis's behaviour only got worse from this point. His brother Angelo said a key turning point came when Gargasoulis started smoking marijuana regularly with his like-minded friends and began committing petty crimes such as theft. Marijuana is often categorised as a gateway drug to heavier illicit drugs as one's thirst for more intensive highs becomes overwhelming. While that contention is often disputed and we've certainly seen much praise for marijuana's medicinal qualities in recent times, it certainly seemed to be more of the former in Gargasoulis's case. By the time Gargasoulis became a young adult in Cooper PD, his go-to drug was crystal methamphetamine, or ice, and to help fund his addiction, he turned to crime. He became a drug dealer. For fun, he and his friends would often engage in antisocial behaviour. They would drive to the outskirts of Cooper PD and do burnouts and donuts on the quiet roads. This bears a chilling resemblance to what Gargasoulis would later do in January 2017. Many of Gargasoulis's antics and bizarre behaviours can be viewed on YouTube, where he created his own channels. He's wearing face masks made of tinfoil and rubber, amongst other strange antics. The videos seem to portray psychotic drug-induced ramblings, or that of someone with severe mental health issues. A local of Kubapedi named John Boy Jelkik knew Gargasoulis when he lived in Kubapedi. One day, Gargasoulis asked Jelkik if he would ever be able to kill someone. How they got onto this subject, I'm not sure, but Jelkik said he couldn't, and Gargasoulis responded with chilling certainty in his voice, I'd have no problem. Gargasoulis did not have a strong mother figure in his life and his relationship with women over the years was described by his friends as mostly violent. His brother Angelo reflected on this part of his life. It was so the most turbulent things I've ever seen. If you want to call them relationships, then um, it's ruined relationships for me forever. <laughs> um, I've seen him drop a woman to the floor, drag her by her hair, kick her and punch her in the middle of the street. Um knock a woman unconscious completely. In another terrifying incident in mid-2016, Gargasoulis crashed into his girlfriend's car on purpose, T-boned her, 
believing that she was cheating on him. I should add, girlfriend at the time, we'll call her Linda. Linda spent 23 days in hospital from this attack, suffering from serious spinal injuries. Gargasoulis' criminal record by this point was 20 pages long and included such charges as reckless conduct causing injury, driving while disqualified, assaulting police and escaping custody. Gargasoulis moved to Melbourne in the latter part of 2016 with Linda and the violence continued against her, increasing in ferocity. In one incident, he attacked Linda at Albert Park Lake, again paranoid that she was cheating on him. Linda soon made a statement to police outlining the horror when one is the recipient of Gargasoulis's anger. She said, He punched me with his clenched right fist in my left eye. It felt like he then tried to eye gouge me. The statement only became more alarming as police listened to Linda's description. I don't know how many times he punched me in the face. I was so scared. He was punching me with both fists. Linda was 19 weeks pregnant with Gargasoulis's child when he attacked her and left her half-naked on the side of the road. Here is Gargasoulis being questioned by police on the incident. Uh, she's good, mate. She's good. <laughs> no, no, you didn't assault her at all? No, sir. She's evil. How does she come up? How does she get these injuries, though? How does she get the, the big lump to her head that cuts to her legs and, and bruises into her? Mate, she's good. That's all I can say. You say you're saying self-inflicted to make you look better? She knows more people than me. Look who she is. Towards the end of 2016, Gargasoulis solicited the services of a sex worker, who we'll refer to as Michelle. Like Linda, Michelle was subjected to unimaginable terror at the hands of Gargasoulis. He would drive recklessly with her in the car and continually mention that he was packing a gun. He confided in Michelle that he had evaded police who were chasing him while recklessly driving on a number of occasions by going on the wrong side of the road or by displaying intent to drive into people. With hindsight, we know this checks out. Gargasoulis had indeed been pursued by police while driving like a maniac on Melbourne's roads. He said he knew the police would not pursue him if he did this for community safety reasons. It appeared to Michelle that he was proud of this, and also that he was high as a kite on drugs. Ice, she assumed. Michelle reported this to police as she escaped from his car and took down the car red Joe, but no actions appears to have been taken by the authorities at this time. Six days before Gargasoulis would go on to commit mass murder, he threatened his mother in her Melbourne apartment. He was arrested for this and for brandishing a knife when threatening her. Around the same time that he threatened Michelle, he attacked Angelo, his brother, by hitting him with a gun and then he threw a tyre iron into a nearby taxi. This was all because Angelo confronted Gargasoulis for kidnapping a friend of his, who Gargasoulis thought was working with the government to have him locked away. Angelo told police, quote, You have to find this guy, he's fucking ruthless. Moving back to the night Gargasoulis threatened his mother, he was arrested by police and taken to St Kilda Police Station to hear his charges and to be interviewed. He was facing an astonishing number of 23 charges at this point, including speeding on the wrong side of the road and ignoring a police direction to stop. A recorded interview with Gargasoulis had him discussing with police his paranoia and fear about people from the lower points of life, and relaying that he believed someone wanted to kill him, 
specifically one of the police officers, Detective Senior Constable Murray Gentner. We'll hear more about Gentner as we go along. At other points of the interview, Gargasoulis is seen to be laughing and joking around with police. Police were in opposition to Gargasoulis being eligible for bail, and for a brief moment, it would seem the community would have respite from his dangerous antisocial behaviour. But unfortunately, he would be granted bail. And you have to ask, how could this happen with all his criminal actions? With a criminal history that was over 20 pages, with his escalating delusions and mental health issues, coupled with his insatiable addiction to methamphetamine, how is this guy classified as anything but a risk to the public? The answer to this question comes in the form of a legal process which exists in the Victorian justice system, which, after Gargasoulis would commit his worst crime yet, would have retired Judge Paul Coughlin review the whole bail system within the state. Victoria is the only state in Australia that has volunteers, not legally qualified, to hear bail applications. At the time of Gargasoulis's application, the volunteer network was contacted to assist as it was out of hours, when usually qualified legal appointees would have reviewed his hearing. A teacher reviewed Gargasoulis's application and accepted his bail request, much to the astonishment of the police. Upon review, the Four Corners News program were later told that the teacher claimed to have not been informed as to Gargasoulis's fragile mental state and of his 20-page criminal record. Police, in response, disputed the teacher's claims by and large. Four days later, on the 18th of January 2017, Gargasoulis would continue to roam the streets, seemingly living life as if there were no consequences. He would make himself a most unwelcome guest at St Francis Catholic Church in central Melbourne. Father Graham Duro was confronted by Gargasoulis in the churchyard and recalled their interaction. Gargasoulis said, I want to talk to you about a revelation I've had from God. The world is going to end in a month's time or sometime next month. As Father Duro tried to interpret what was being said to him, and the character and intentions of Gargasoulis, a dark shadow appeared over him. His eyes were intense and focused on Father Duro. Look into my eyes when I speak to you, warned Gargasoulis. Duro left the conversation to return to the monastery, and he recollected Gargasoulis snapping some insults behind his back, something along the lines of, you're a disgrace, you're the devil. Duro did not retaliate, but Gargasoulis wasn't finished yet. Laughing and bounding with energy, Gargasoulis stepped up onto the pulpit of the church, centre stage, and began blabbing incoherently about terrorists while physically expressing himself like he was Jesus on the cross with his arm movements and expressions. In the video, which is available to view online, churchgoers appear flabbergasted and unsure how to handle the situation, which is completely understandable. Soon, Gargasoulis is reprimanded verbally by some churchgoers and the police are called. He quickly took off after police spoke to him briefly, but he was not pursued further because a name check apparently didn't list him as having any warrants outstanding, so they seemingly took him for a pest. Four hours later, he would steal the Maroon Commodore. According to his brother Angelo, Gargasoulis was at his mother's unit with her boyfriend, Gavin Wilson, 
Gargasoulis wanted to borrow Gavin's maroon Commodore, and when Gavin refused, Gargasoulis set fire to a Bible, smashed it, and then shoved it in Gavin's face. Then he proceeded to punch Gavin in the face. Evidence photos show the burnt family Bible and photos of Gavin, his face covered in painful black and red blisters. Again, police were called, and again, Gargasoulis took off, like the flighty maniac he is. CCTV in the complex's car park showed the Commodore speeding off. The next time emergency services would hear from Gargasoulis would be from the criminal himself, several times. Copious amounts of methamphetamine had been consumed by Gargasoulis at this point, and recordings of some of the repeated triple zero calls he made displayed his rapid personality shifts. Hello, caller, what address do you need police to attend? I don't need an address. I want to um, make a state emergency that, oh, well, a worldwide emergency that there's a comet in the sky and that NASA should take a look at that because it's going to hit the Earth. They're trying to kill me so my brother can rule the world after this is fucking hit. And then all the rich people will go underground and yeah, blah, blah, blah. So fucking work that out, you dumb fuck. Well, you're not dumb. You just, you need to fucking understand what the fuck is really going on. Why do you think the world is fucked up? Why do you think they're all lies and deceiving? Now, I'll be dead after this, hopefully not. Why will you be dead, James? Why? Because the comet will take me out because I have no safety. The following night, on the 19th of January 2017, around 9.30pm, Gargasoulis bought a meal from McDonald's in St Kilda, then checked in at the dog's bar, where he posted to Facebook, thinking about what to do with them, lol. Gargasoulis was kicked out of the bar after he interrupted a bunch of patrons' meals, pushing glasses and bottles off their tables. Then he stood in the middle of the road, staring at the chef with his arms folded, a glazed look of invulnerability on his face. Now we get to the fateful day where Gargasoulis would go on to commit his most horrifying and senseless of crimes, where all his paranoia, mental illness and drug-induced behaviour would boil over for all the nation and indeed the world to see. At 1am on January the 20th, 2017, a storm was raging across Melbourne, literally and metaphorically. Gargasoulis was at his mother's apartment once again with a new girlfriend named Akia Muo. Angelo was also there and he thought his brother was off his rocker again. Gargasoulis began quizzing him intently about a comet coming to destroy the earth. He believed that his brother Angelo held the key to safety and knew where the bunkers were to keep safe and hidden from the comet. Gargasoulis felt Angelo was withholding key information to their survival and questioned why his brother wouldn't tell him. So we are six hours prior to what we covered in the introduction of this episode, where Gargasoulis rolled up in his stolen Commodore and interrupted the Channel 9 news crew admitting to attacking his brother in ambiguous explanations. Around this time, 2am, Gargasoulis left his mother's unit with Angelo. 
CCTV footage shows Gargasoulis walking hesitantly to the street, while Angelo walks even more hesitantly behind Gargasoulis. Next thing, Gargasoulis is in an offensive position, now behind Angelo, brandishing a knife from the right pocket of the coat he was wearing. Angelo was violently stabbed by his brother. The knife went straight through one of Angelo's lungs, and he described his lung making a blow-off sound. Gargasoulis then picked up Angelo by his hair and went at him again with the knife, in Angelo's words, like a pineapple, in a repeated stabbing motion. Police were again called for the fourth time in nine hours about Gargasoulis, and once again, the meth-addled, knife-wielding maniac evaded capture. He sped off in the Commodore as his brother was rushed to hospital by ambulance, fighting for his life, where he was ultimately put in an induced coma. I also read conflicting accounts from police stating they believed the reason Gargasoulis stabbed his younger brother was for being gay. And this came from a series of Facebook posts Gargasoulis put up saying he was God himself in human bodily form and denouncing gay people. At 4.30am, a police sergeant requested urgent assistance from the critical incident response team of the Victorian police, with emphasis placed on the looming threat Gargasoulis posed to the community. The sergeant was completely dismayed with the response of the CIRT, who were alleged to have refused to attend to the Gargasoulis case, claiming it did not fit their criteria. When the sergeant reported his disappointment to the homicide squad, he stated he was told there was nothing they could do about it. Gargasoulis was required to face court. Here's a clip of former Police Association Secretary and Victims of Crime Commissioner Greg Davies commenting on this point. If this isn't a critical incident in the making, I don't know what is. Just get out there and do it. Just go and get the job done, you know. Um, But we've got people shackled by idiotic policy and uh, the fear that they might make the wrong call and limit or destroy their career. Well, it's supposed to be about policing and the number one priority for policing is the preservation of human life. At 8.04am, Gargasoulis appeared on TV on Raleigh Street, Windsor, his mother's street, confessing to his crime, as mentioned at the start of this episode. Neary Ty was the name of the news reporter that morning. Ty later described Gargasoulis ranting, raving and swearing as she was trying to report. Her cameraman tried to quieten Gargasoulis, thinking he was a bystander wanting attention. Gargasoulis took off quickly, Ty said, and almost took out a few cars at the speed he was going. Gargasoulis then parked his car on the same side of the road where Ty and her cameraman were packing up to leave the area. Ty said, He was there for a while. He didn't seem erratic while he was sitting there in the seat. He, remarkably, was there around 10 minutes after police and the SES had just left the scene. Ty and her cameraman would be shocked later in the day when they saw on the evening news the same distinctive car plough into numerous innocent bystanders on Burke Street. Merely two hours before Gargasoulis's major crime, he was being followed by the police, and he was aware of this. His girlfriend was in the car, he'd kidnapped her, Gargasoulis evaded capture once again. He pulled over his car, the police got out to approach and he sped off again. 
The next words to come out of Gargasulis's mouth must still terrify and traumatise his ex-girlfriend, Akir, to this day. He said, If they catch up to me, I'm going to run down everyone in the city. Shortly after, the CIRT approached Gargasulis with weapons drawn. His girlfriend was then thrown out of the car on the Balti Bridge, and he sped off again. Police again were ordered not to intercept or give chase in line with the current pursuit or no pursuit policy, which was intended to be for the safety of the community. Here is Victims of Crime Commissioner Greg Davies again, followed by a counterpoint from former Police Chief Commissioner Christine Nixon. I think uh, James Gargasoulis and uh, incidents, subsequent incidents like uh, that Burke Street tragedy are the inevitable result of 20 years of pushing decision-making from the geographical location of the incident that's occurring in front of people who are witnessing it all the way up to someone in an office somewhere else miles away from where it's happening. The policies have been put into place with a great deal of thought or experience or, or advice from, from uh, courts or commissions of inquiry or coroners. And so it's not as if um, people in administration or people in roles like mine sit there and think, how can we actually stuff up the role being done by police officers on the street? You're trying to take into account in terms of policies and decision-making um, how you can best protect them. We are now 90 minutes before the Burke Street attack and Detective Senior Constable Gentner, who had flagged his concerns about Gargasoulis several times over by this point, was in pursuit of him and texting him constantly. 12.54pm, Gentner text, James, you have to call me now, bro. Gargasoulis, I've calculated my options. I either die in jail or die trying to run from the boys. I'm telling you I am the saviour and there is a comet and I know how to save everything and everyone but these guys are pretty good and making me look like I'm the devil. Shortly after, Gargasoulis stopped at a construction site in Yarraville. A contractor, Trent Schmidt, was concerned with his peculiar behaviour and called triple zero. Schmidt reported, There's a guy. He's sitting in the car. We were doing some work there. He's come out and he's babbling on about the end of the world. Schmidt went on to describe Gargasoulis as looking a bit like Nick Kyrgios and that he believed the sun in the sky was a comet and it was coming to destroy Earth and there was a bunker under the State Library. The whole thing was a government conspiracy or words to that effect. A police helicopter was now sent and police on the ground were en route to the construction site. But Gargasoulis had taken off again. He was now on his way to the Melbourne CBD. Gentner still in constant communication over text with him. Gentner, don't be silly. I will help you fix everything. Call me now. Gargasoulis, I'm not talking lies. This is real. I can tell the future, my friend. They will not win. I have the knowledge. Over an hour and a half, Gentner had been trying to reason with Gargasoulis, asking him to pull over. There were 33 texts exchanged during this time. Gargasoulis was now in Federation Square doing burnouts, Thousands of people armed with their phones started recording as the surrounding cars, buses and trams ground to a halt. The public's attention was now firmly on Gargasoulis from this point as he leant out of the driver's side window, yelling and swearing. 
Along with the shocking visuals captured, the sound in these videos were loud and haunting, as Gargasoulis performed donuts in Federation Square, right in the centre of Melbourne's CBD, waving his arms maniacally and performing offensive gestures. Two Year 12 students named Tevita Mahina and Isaac Tupo tried to stop Gargasoulis and hit his car with baseball bats. One man even opened the car door to confront Gargasoulis but was stopped when Gargasoulis took off down Swanson Street as shocked onlookers and authorities tried to make sense of the bizarre events. Gentner's last text to Gargasoulis were to no avail. Don't do this, meet me. Stop doing this, stop. Gargasoulis, while being pursued by police, sped down busy Swanston Street and began to drive on the footpath as the horrified public scrambled out of the way, seeking refuge in local shops. He then turned onto Burke Street, two unmarked police cars following him, and people all around began hearing rapid thudding sounds. Witness Josh Baldacino was finishing his lunch break when he witnessed Gargasoulis. He said... He, Gargasoulis, had this calm, surreal look on his face. He's got his two hands on the steering wheel with a cigarette. It's either just been lit or it's unlit, and it's drooping out of his mouth. And he's just expressionless as he hits these people and continues up the hill. People were flying off the bonnet of the maroon Commodore. Luke Winter was one of the several innocent bystanders who was hit by the Commodore. He later said, When I got up, there was just carnage. There were other people who'd been hit strewn along the ground. Footage from a bystander in the area filmed frantically all around them as members of the public were lying on the ground in pain. Police, first aiders and other members of the public rushed to the aid of the victims. Winter reflected later, all that was left in that section of Burke Street along the way back to work was just debris and bodies. Former Chief Commissioner of Police Christine Nixon was also in the area, not on official duties as I understand, and she narrowly avoided being hit. In the wake of the turbulent attack, she was one of the first to see and check an empty pram that had toppled over on its side. Gargasoulis was on Burke Street for a mere 55 seconds and had hurt 33 people, and all of these people were enjoying a regular Melbourne day, out with kids, lunch with their loved ones, shopping, visiting from interstate, coffee with work colleagues. They were all sisters, daughters, brothers, sons, fathers and mothers. The first man to die was 25-year-old Japanese student Yosuke Kano. He was killed on the footpath outside the Royal Arcade in the Burke Street Mall. Then Bavita Patel was hit She survived but later passed on January 30. She was 33 years of age. Further up Burke Street, 22-year-old Sydney woman Jess Moody was killed as Gargasoulis hit her outside 405 Burke Street. Matthew Sy, 33, was hit next. He died in hospital later that day. After crossing Queen Street, Gargasoulis sped towards the Haken family. 10-year-old Talia with her mother Natalie and sister Maggie. Talia was hit and died almost instantly. Little Zachary Bryant, just three months old, was the final victim. He died in hospital after being thrust from his pram at 501 Burke Street. The car finally came to a stop past William Street near the AMP Square at 555 Burke Street 
after the fuel line to the engine failed. Gargasoulis was shot twice and tasered by police, then finally arrested. Footage shows the police dragging him from the car across the footpath. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. Initially, this was thought to have been a terrorist incident. It's understandable why many minds went to this. Just the year before, you had attacks in Nice in France and Berlin in Germany and shortly after you'd have similar attacks in London and Stockholm. In the 2010s, vehicle ramming attacks became a popular terrorist tactic due to the panic and terror they inflicted, the large numbers of fatalities they could achieve, and the low level of skill and planning required to carry it out. But police were quick to quash this theory, and really, no evidence exists to suggest it was for any cause – other than the self-serving, warped mind of the man at the centre of it. Christine Nixon complimented the police on how they handled Gargasoulis' rampage. She said, I think the police did the best they possibly could. They will question everything in their mind. They will wake up at night and say, could I have, should I have, how could I have done things differently? Gargasoulis, now in remand, was diagnosed as having schizophrenia. In November 2018, Gargasoulis faced the Victorian Supreme Court. As he was led into the court by a corrective services van, shackled and escorted by court officers, he stared at the many cameras taking his photo. His image was a stark contrast to how he looked in January 2017. His hair was longer and he appeared unkempt, unshaven for significant amounts of time. He'd gained a significant amount of weight and was almost unrecognisable after this passing of time. He also faced the family members and friends of many of the victims injured or killed in his rampage on Burke Street. CCTV footage from the day of the massacre was shown to the jury and the impact and horror of those in his path of destruction was described in detail. Gargasoulis was recorded driving at speeds of more than 60 kilometres per hour on the road and then on the footpath, not slowing down at any point, even after a pram he hit was lodged in the windscreen of his car. During his trial, Gargasoulis pleaded not guilty, but testified that he was the driver of the vehicle. 
He stated this was all due to a drug-induced psychosis, and while that might have been the case in some respect, it did not amount to a defence. Theo Alexander was defence barrister for Gargasoulis and said that he would give evidence of his very important reason for committing the attack. Gargasoulis would be the only witness for his own defence. He explained to the jury that he had had a premonition from God of running over people in Burke Street on the day of the attack. This appeared to contradict accounts of Gargasoulis being concerned that a comet was going to hit Earth, which we spoke about earlier. Gargasoulis spoke in his own defence for about 10 minutes, in which he apologised for his actions, then went on to say, The Muslim faith is the correct faith according to the whole world. I am the saviour. I was under extreme stress, which caused me to have a mental breakdown. Life is being controlled by the government, and I'm very saddened by everything that's happened, but it's all due to the Illuminati. Gargasoulis had been deemed fit to stand trial, and his defence was rejected by Director of Public Prosecutions, Kerry Judd. Jury deliberations took only 57 minutes before returning a verdict in a trial that lasted less than a week. Gargasoulis jiggled his knee in nervous anticipation as his verdict was being read out. Guilty. Guilty on each charge of murdering six people and recklessly injuring 27 others. Life in prison. He did not react to the verdict. The victims' names were read out in court and the family members and loved ones shed many tears. Advice line injury lawyers represented the families of five of the victims and released a statement in absolute agreement with the verdict. It said... Gargasoulis's callous actions on that day shattered the lives of the family and friends whose loved ones he stole. Gargasoulis was held in solitary confinement in Melbourne Assessment Prison. Melbourne Assessment Prison is a maximum security facility which assesses new male prisoners and orientates them to the prison system. It's what we commonly hear called remand. More recently, the prison has housed disgraced cardinal and convicted child sex offender George Pell. In Gargasoulis' time in this prison, he was held in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day, was not allowed contact with other prisoners, and rarely took the opportunity to exercise or be in the sunlight when offered. In January 2019, to add more insult to injury to his victims... Gargasoulis and his defence submitted a plea that he should have a non-parole period set. Victims who had lost their loved ones read out heartbreaking victim impact statements in the Victorian Supreme Court. Emily Moody lost her twin sister Jessica and said her sister often visited her in her dreams. She said, I sometimes forget she died. I go to message her about what she's having for dinner or how her day was. Jessica was in Melbourne on the day of the attack to visit her brother Kurt. Kurt reflected on how the loss has profoundly affected his life. He said, I try desperately to hold on to her in my dreams, but she always leaves. In a result that angered families and the nation, Gargasoulis was granted a non-parole period of 46 years. When the decision was read, the courtroom held a strong feeling of hostility that he should have never been allowed to leave custody. Victims would later state their feelings on this explicitly. 
The Victorian judge described Gargasoulis' actions as one of the worst examples of mass murder in Australian history. Gargasoulis demonstrated on several occasions a complete lack of remorse or respect for the victims or for the families and friends of those murdered by his hands as they poured their hearts out over how their lives have been irreparably damaged as a result of his actions. He was described as crossing his arms and yawning as he heard the victims' families' bereaved stories, nodding his head from time to time but seeming more interested in when he could speak next. Gargasoulis read out a three-page letter that he wrote. The start of it seemed a vain attempt to appease the victims left in his wake. He said, I apologise from my heart for taking the lives of your loved ones. But following this introduction, he would be completely self-serving, displaying himself as the main victim and the actual victims merely as characters in the warp story playing out in his head. He went on to blame the government, the Queen, God and even girlfriend troubles. Douglas Bell was the psychiatrist assigned to treat Gargasoulis and described his perceptions through his letters and sessions with the man. He said, His delusional beliefs are essentially unchanged. He still believes he is the Messiah and is someone who can save the world from being destroyed by a comet. Dr. Bell outlined how Gargasoulis still didn't realise the effect of his actions and probably never will. So, the final verdict in February 2019 was a sentence of life in prison, non-parole period 46 years. This year, an inquest will be held to investigate three points. One, what Victoria Police knew about Gargasoulis prior to January 20th, 2017. Two, how the police dealt with him, and three, the lead-up to the attack on Burke Street and to ascertain why he was granted bail. Angelo Gargasoulis recovered from his stabbing injuries. He stated after the massacre that Gargasoulis should have been jailed long beforehand. It could have saved so many lives, it could have saved so much drama, he said. Gargasoulis's father later said, He's not the Jimmy I used to know and he would scratch his son off his books. And his mother said she was ashamed to be his mother and she wanted her son to die in hell. Former Victims of Crime Commissioner Davies, who we've heard from a couple of times in this episode, reflected on the attack. He wasn't stopped and he was allowed to travel from the suburbs into the centre of our capital city without being stopped. And we now know the outcome of that. Now, that's certainly not the fault of any individual police officer who was involved in that operation on the day. It's a culmination of bad policy, um, remoteness of decision-making, and, uh, you know, we've now all got to live with that. On the 23rd of January 2017, a memorial for the victims was held in Federation Square and a multitude of tributes and flowers were left by the public at numerous locations along the Burke Street Mall. It was announced just a week later that a permanent memorial garden would be set up and around a million dollars in donations had been made to the Burke Street Fund for the families of the victims. 
And we tossed up here at the end whether to talk a bit individually about the victims and who they were. Ultimately, we decided not to do that, this being such a recent case with things still happening around it in legal circles to this day. And I think those who were close to them will have their own memories to cherish. But we'd encourage everyone to listen to the True Crime Storytime podcast, fellow Aussies Casey and Samantha, and they've done a fantastic job in this case, and every case they do, actually, of celebrating the victims' lives and their individual stories. On behalf of us here at True Blue, our thoughts are with all of the survivors of this attack, both the injured and the families of the dearly departed. And may the six people who lost their lives, who were much more than just victims, right, Chloe, as you said, they were children, sisters, brothers, husbands and wives. May they all rest in peace. Yeah, so my thoughts on this case, I read an article from The Guardian on the sentencing of Gargasoulis and it was so chilling. The courtroom was described as being filled with the victims' families and Gargasoulis sat motionless during his sentencing I can't fathom what those families were feeling in that courtroom, being almost face-to-face with someone that killed one of your loved ones, pled not guilty and showed no remorse. A quote from Justice Weinberg from the same article sums up the enormity and senselessness of the crime. He said, The horror of what you did has profoundly impacted the lives of those who were present that day. One aspect of the case that I keep thinking about is how the mental health intervention didn't happen here, or if it did, it's another case where the system maybe isn't always set up to support people in the right way. There's a Royal Commission into Mental Health happening right now for a good reason. Everyone who has experienced mental health problems would know that the system is set up to help people in a certain type of crisis and it's hard to get support in the lead up before that escalation happens, especially if a person has multiple issues. There are a lot of people working really hard in this area, but the system is not set up to support them or to intervene early to take a potentially dangerous person off the street. Anyway, I'm going down a slippery slope of what-ifs here, which isn't helpful for anyone. This case was so reckless and painful for so many, and I'm just so sorry that it happened. Sean, what are your thoughts? Tragic as attacks like this are, the positive out of it is that you do see heroes come out of the woodwork when their backs are to the wall, so to speak. It brings out the best in many. Wasn't all just Gargasoulis and a ball of ice. I read tales about the bravery of a young man named Henry Dow, another about a guy named Lou who was a taxi driver. Both of these guys aided the injured. I for one have heard enough about James Gargasoulis, this poor man's Nick Kyrgios, and I don't even like Kyrgios that much. You know, I was just listening to the podcast the other day, Small Town Dicks, Uh, A recent episode of theirs called Rampage. It's a great podcast, by the way, with some excellent insights from detectives. But the, the detectives described a similar spree in this episode, and it was about a vehicle ramming attack just like this. And the way they talked about responding to it, the manoeuvres that they're trained to take a vehicle like this off the road, the training and pursuits... It was seemingly to me a stark contrast to the way this incident was responded to. Granted, it's the US and there's always going to be a counter-argument to do with how they handle things over there, 
gun laws, etc. But the premise of my point remains despite that, and I can't help but agree with the victims of Crime Commissioner Davies on that point, especially when you consider what Gargasoulis had been up to, stabbing his brother in the head only hours before. Why was he not pursued and engaged and stopped? He's already a murderer for all intents and purposes at that point, right? He clearly intended to kill Angelo, his brother. It was lucky Angelo even survived. And just for us personally, we'd be interested to hear from any law enforcement officers on that point too, Victorian or interstate. Feel free to drop us a line on the email about your thoughts on this, but that's my thoughts. Yeah, so that's the Burke Street attack. Um, Let's move on to happy thoughts. Sean, what's your happy thought this week? Well, I'm going to buck the trend and not go with a food-related happy thought (laughs) this week. What else is there in life? Or a material good, for that matter, (laughs) at all. Now, my happy thought is that we got Michael here with us tonight. Yep. Uh, That's been a pleasant experience. (laughs) He's been very helpful with, um, (laughs) with helping with the sound and it's been good to catch up with him because we spend a lot of time talking over the over the email and text message and stuff. so And he saves our life, no doubt, every week. Yes. So, yes. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> um, mine is that I have a, had and am having a really good news week. So a good friend had a baby and I'm going to a friend's hen party this weekend. So it's just one big love fest over here. And as you know, I am so here for all things feelings and I bloody love celebrating love. So here we go. Do you have to be so positive? <laughs> I wait the whole way to get to that. (laughs) Um, So if you have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com or if you want, you can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Podcast and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. Over there, you'll get uh, bonus episodes, ad-free regular episodes, case updates, debriefs, blooper reels, and much more. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please do leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find the show as well. Thank you to everyone who's reviewed us recently. And a shout-out to John, one of our Patreon supporters, for the writing and research on this episode. We'll be back next week. We might take a wander interstate or stay in Victoria. We're not sure yet. But on that note, we're probably going to loosen up on the more rigid season-by-season format, right, Chloe, that we've been doing yeah. and running the uh, the themes through them. We've come to the realisation, cool as that is from a, a storytelling perspective, it does uh, sort of restrict us a bit with what we can cover and removes that element of, of creativity. Particularly you, Sean, being able to draw an inspiration or choose something to cover that might be more relevant at the time or newsworthy. Yeah, exactly. So we'll just roll along week to week now and take a break if we need, but uh, we'll still cover some bigger cases and linked cases, series of episodes and stuff like that here and there, just not as rigid as it's been. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you all next week. Thank you. Bye.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 